a great week. This is VOA News, reporting via remote amateur green. The head of Myanmar's junta will extend a state of emergency in the country for a further six months. State media said on Monday that the junta's National Defense and Security Council had given its approval. The junta first declared a state of emergency after seizing power from the elected civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi in a coup in February of last year. Myanmar has been in chaos since the coup, with conflict spreading across the Southeast Asian country after the army crushed mostly peaceful protests in cities. The hunter said it had taken power because of voting fraud in a November 2020 general election that was easily won by Aung San Suu Kyi's parties. Election monitoring groups found no evidence of mass fraud. The, elect, the ruling coalition of Senegal President Macky Sall has claimed victory in Sunday's legislative elections. The coalition says it has won 30 of the country's 46 administrative departments, giving it a slim parliamentary majority. The political backdrop in the country of 17.5 million, considered among West Africa's most stable democracies, has become increasingly acrimonious, fueled in part by President Saul's refusal to rule out breaching term limits. Violent protests erupted last year after Saul's main opponent, Osmane Sanko, was arrested on rape charges. Sanko, who came in third in the last presidential election in 2019, denies the allegations and says they are politically motivated. The mayor of the capital of Dakar, Bartholomew Diaz, and the leader of the main opposition coalition, which has been energized by economic hardship and fears of Saul's third-term ambition, immediately disputed the results. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has confirmed she will travel to Asia. AP correspondent Lisa Dwyer reports. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has confirmed that she will visit four Asian countries this week, but there was no mention of a possible stop in Taiwan. Such a visit has angered Beijing. China claims Taiwan as its own territory. Pelosi says that she is leading a congressional delegation to Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan. Taiwan and China split in 1949. Both sides say they are one country, but they disagree over which government is entitled to to national leadership. Washington is obligated by federal law to see that Taiwan has the means to defend itself. A Taiwan visit by Pelosi would make her the highest ranking elected American official to visit Taiwan since a visit by former House Speaker Newt Gingrich in 1997. I'm Lisa Dwyer. Pelosi was expected to arrive in Singapore on Monday for a two-day visit, citing the country's foreign minister. The American Chamber of Commerce in Singapore was scheduled to host a reception with her on Monday afternoon, according to its website. Russian missiles pounded the southern Ukrainian port city of Mykolaiv early on, on Sunday, killing the owner of a major grain exporter. Oleski Vatatursky and his wife were killed in their home, according to Mykolaiv's governor, uh, in a statement on Telegram. Vatatursky was founder and owner of an agricultural company headquartered in Mykolaiv, a strategically important city that borders the mostly Russian-occupied Kherson region. Meanwhile, a Russian lawmaker said a drone strike on Russia's Black Sea naval base in Sevastopol was launched from within the city in a terrorist attack. Five Russian Navy staff members were injured by an explosion after a presumed drone flew, flew into the courtyard of Russia's Black Sea fleet headquarters in Russian-occupied Sevastopol. The governor of the Crimean port city blamed the attack on Ukraine, saying it had decided to spoil Navy Day for Russia. Recapping our top story, the head of Myanmar's junta will extend the state of emergency in the country for a further six months. That's according to state media, 
reporting that the Hunter's National Defense and Security Council had given its approval. The Hunter first dis- declared a state of emergency after seizing power from the elected governor of elected civ- civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi in a coup last February. Myanmar has been in chaos since the coup, with conflict spreading across the Southeast Asian country after the army crushed mostly peaceful protests in cities. The Hunter said it had taken power because of voting fraud in a November 20 general election that was easily won by Aung San Suu Kyi's political party. Election monitoring groups, however, found no evidence of mass fraud. You can find more on this story and all the stories we're covering. Visit us at voanews.com. We also have an app you can download. Just search for VOA News. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Today is Monday, August 1st, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinadolfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, President Vladimir Putin casts the United States as Russia's main rival and sets out global maritime ambitions. Putin signed a new 55-page doctrine setting out the Navy's strategic aims and its ambitions as a great maritime power extending over the entire world. Ukrainian forces strike the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Russian-held Sevastopol. The strike, which hit the major port city of Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula, led to the cancellation of Russia's Navy Day holiday celebrations. And President Joe Biden says he is, quote, feeling fine, unquote, after a COVID-19 rebound. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. President Vladimir Putin on Sunday signed a new naval doctrine which casts the United States as Russia's main rival and sets out Russia's global maritime ambitions for crucial areas such as the Arctic and in the Black Sea. Maya Wormsley of Reuters reports. Putin was speaking on the nation's Navy Day in the former imperial capital of St. Petersburg, a city founded by Tsar Peter the Great. The president praised Peter for making Russia a great sea power and increasing the global standing of the Russian state. Shortly before, Putin signed a new 55-page doctrine setting out the Navy's strategic aims and its ambitions as a great maritime power extending over the entire world. It says the main threat to Russia is the, quote, strategic policy of the USA to dominate the world's oceans, as well as the NATO military alliance moving closer towards its borders. If soft powers like diplomatic and economic tools have been exhausted, the doctrine claims Russia may use appropriate military force. Putin did not mention the conflict in Ukraine during his speech, but the military doctrine envisages strengthening Russia's geopolitical position in the Black and Azov seas and set out the Arctic Ocean as being of particular importance. The U.S. has repeatedly said Russia is trying to militarize the area. Putin added that delivery of Russia's unique Zircon hypersonic cruise missiles would begin within months, emphasizing his ambition to be able to respond to threats to Russia's sovereignty with, quote, lightning speed. Hypersonic weapons can travel at nine times the speed of sound. Over the past year, Russia's conducted test launches of the Zircon missiles from warships and submarines. That's mere warmestly of Reuters. A drone explosion hit Russia's Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol, 
injuring at least six people on Russia's Never Day holiday, Associated Press correspondent Naomi Shinan reports. The strike, which hit the major port city of Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula, led to the cancellation of Russia's Navy Day holiday celebrations. The Black Sea Fleet's press service says the drone looks to be homemade. According to Sevastopol Mayor Mikhail Razvosav, an unmanned drone attacked the courtyard of the headquarters at around 6 a.m. He says there is no reason to panic, everything is under control, and all law enforcement agencies are mobilized. There is no immediate information on where the drone began its flight. Sevastopol is about 170 kilometers south of Ukraine, and Russian forces control much of the mainland area along the Black Sea. I'm Naomi Shannon. U.S. President Joe Biden said he was, quote, feeling fine, unquote, after testing positive for COVID-19 again on Saturday. In a video statement posted to Twitter showing Biden standing on a White House balcony with his dog commander by his side, the 79-year-old leader said he had tested positive on Saturday morning. The White House said Biden, who emerged from COVID isolation on Wednesday after initially testing positive on July 21st, will now return to strict isolation and has canceled planned trips for his home in Wilmington and work trip in Michigan. Biden held public events on Wednesday and Thursday, but none on Friday. The first isolation comes as the White House was hoping to celebrate some recent legislative victories to help boost Biden's slumping poll ratings. U.S. President Joe Biden. Hey, folks. Joe Biden here. Tested positive this morning. Going to be working from home for the next couple of days. Uh, and feeling fine. Everything's good. But the command and I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> That's U.S. President Joe Biden. Heat waves are becoming increasingly intense, frequent, and long-lasting around the world because of climate change. But the pattern of heat waves unfolding in Europe is a global outliner, and scientists still don't entirely understand why. Elise Katz has more for VOA. Heat waves, like the one that broke records across Europe in early July, are happening more often and reaching higher temperatures because of climate change. That is happening around the world. But scientists say the increasing temperatures in Europe are especially extreme. We have had an increase, an outstanding increase in uh, the number, intensity of heat waves. Robert Votard, a climate scientist at the Climate and Environment Sciences Laboratory in France, says climate models capture a bit of this extra heat, but their predictions fall short of the real warming in Europe. We do not understand uh, why we do have uh, such an increase that the models do not predict. Uh, Models predict uh, easily an increase of uh, 1.5 to 2 degrees uh, in the extreme heat waves uh, since uh, about 100 years um, ago, but uh, they do not predict 4 degrees. Climate scientists are looking for answers. Dim Kumu, a climate scientist at Vrije Universiteit in Amsterdam, thinks that changes in air currents are causing European heat waves. The jet stream is a high-altitude air current that is important for Europe's climate. Sometimes, the jet stream splits in two, which changes how air flows over Europe in a way that makes heat waves more likely. Climate change seems to be making these double jets happen more often. Kumu and his colleagues recently discovered that helps explain most of the extra heat in Western Europe. We saw a doubling of these double jet states, right? A doubling in frequency, roughly. And we showed that, especially for Western Europe, uh, this uh, increased frequency in in this particular jet state 
can explain for Western Europe the increase in heat waves here. Drought could also be causing European heat waves. Climate scientist Sonia Seneviratne of ETH Zurich says that dry soils mean less water evaporates or passes through plants into the atmosphere through a process called evapotranspiration. Evapotranspiration normally takes up a lot of energy, which means that if it doesn't take place because the soils are too dry, this energy is used instead to warm the air. Seneviratne says that aridity likely was a factor this year. There is a clear indication that dry soils have contributed to the intensity of the heat waves that are currently being seen in Europe. It's also possible that a slowdown in a major ocean current, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, is causing heat waves. For VOA News, I'm Elise Cutts. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, this week reported that global crises have combined to raise levels of acute malnutrition in dozens of refugee sites surveyed, most of them in Africa. Lisa Schneider reports for VOA from Geneva on UNHCR's 2021 Annual Public Health Global Review. UNHCR officials say they are concerned by their findings, which show a significant deterioration in the nutritional condition of refugees. Monitoring refugees' nutritional status resumed last year after stopping in 2020 because of COVID-19 restrictions. The officials say a third of the 93 sites surveyed in 12 African countries and in Bangladesh showed serious levels of global acute malnutrition a measurement of a population's nutritional status, and 14% of locations recorded life-threatening levels of malnutrition. UNHCR spokeswoman Shabi Amantu tells VOA the rates of malnutrition are particularly troubling, as they were recorded before the war in Ukraine sent food and commodity prices rising. This is a key concern because nutritional intake is really key to building healthier and resilient communities. The, the leading causes of illness for refugees remained upper respiratory tract infections, um, malaria and lower respiratory tract infections. And we had non-communicable diseases also accounting for, for about 5% of consultations, um, as well as mental health. So. These concerns are playing out at a particularly difficult time marked by the COVID-19 pandemic and record levels of people being forcibly displaced by conflict, violence and natural disasters. Despite these problems, the UNHCR says gains were made in the inclusion of refugees into national health policies. A survey of 46 countries found 76% included refugees in their national health plans and practically all refugees were able to use primary health facilities. In another promising result, by the end of last year, the report says 162 countries had included refugees and asylum seekers in national COVID-19 vaccination plans. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, relatives on Sunday said Nichelle Nichols, who broke grounds for black women acting on television, as the beautiful no-nonsense communications officer Lieutenant Iota Uhura on the original Star Trek TV series, has died at the age of 89. Her role in the 1966-69 series as Lieutenant Uhura earned Nichols a lifelong position of honor with the series fans known as Trekkers or Trekkies. It also earned her accolades for breaking racial stereotypes included an interracial online case with co-star William Shatner that was unheard of at that time. 
For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chine Ruafo in Washington. The UN Refugee Agency has called for more to be done to protect African refugees and migrants from traffickers on their way from the Sahel and the Horn of Africa towards North Africa and Europe. Again, Lisa Schneider reports for VOA from Geneva. UNHCR spokeswoman Shabia Mantu says traffickers take advantage of African refugees fleeing persecution and violence and of migrants fleeing poverty and climate shocks, subjecting them to appalling abuse. Some, some of them are left to die in the desert, others um, are based and suffer repeated sexual and gender-based violence, um, kidnapping ransom, torture, and many other forms of physical and psychological abuse. Um, so the, the, the human trafficking issue is, is widespread and it's, it's incredibly alarming. The report issued by the UNHCR in the Mixed Migration Centre at the Danish Refugee Council is based on information from 12 countries, from Burkina Faso and Cameroon to Somalia and Sudan. Mantu tells VOA human traffickers and smugglers use technology and online platforms to advertise their services to unsuspecting victims. She says traffickers employ the Internet to identify, groom, and recruit victims, including children. She says the UNHCR is urging governments and the private sector to work together to crack down on the use of the Internet by traffickers. These, these same digital technologies can be leveraged to actually counter the issue and counter trafficking by um, helping empower communities with trustworthy information to better protect themselves and also be aware of the risks that they might face um, on these journeys to ensure that there are protection services available to the people that are taking these um, precarious and, and perilous journeys to prevent and end uh, the human trafficking and, and smuggling risks. The report provides tailored information for refugees and migrants on services available on different routes. The UNHCR is calling for the creation of shelters and safe places, better access to legal services and specialized services for children and female survivors of trafficking and gender-based violence. UNHCR officials stressed the importance of identifying critical locations to serve as so-called last stops, places where refugees and migrants can get information about the dangers that lie ahead before they embark on journeys across the Sahara. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Supporters of Iraqi Shiite leader Muqtada al-Sada and other opponents of Iran's political proxy forces occupied parliament headquarters in Baghdad's Green Zone once again Saturday, protesting efforts by the pro-Iranian alliance to name a new prime minister loyal to them. Edward Uranian reports for VOA from Cairo. Thousands of Iraqi protesters stormed Baghdad's Green Zone Saturday, braving tear gas and stun grenades to breach the country's parliament for a second time in a week. Supporters of Shiite cleric Muqtada Sadr, who won Iraq's last parliamentary elections, are trying to block pro-Iranian parties from naming their own choice to be the next prime minister. Dozens of injured protesters were taken to hospitals amid the heat and clamor. 
Iraqi State TV reported that 100 protesters were injured and 25 members of the country's security forces were also injured. The TV channel showed the health minister visiting the injured in the hospital. Outgoing Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa Kazemi called on protesters to remain calm and avoid attacking security forces in a speech on state TV. He says that he calls on protesters to act with calm, patience and wisdom to avoid provoking conflicts and to respect the security forces and other state institutions. He insisted the fires of sectarian conflict will burn everyone and urged all Iraqis to remain united and cooperate. Kazemi went on to say that the solution to the current crisis is political and will come from an honest dialogue and concessions that are in the interests of Iraq and its people. Shiite political leader Amar Hakim urged Sadr and his supporters to negotiate with pro-Iranian political parties and their nominal head, former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. Iraqi media reported that Maliki also wants to negotiate. A top Sadr supporter, Sheikh Jabbar al-Mamouri, told Iraqi media that Sadr is not the cause of the conflict and all Iraqis are opposed to pro-Iranian proxy forces. He says it seems clear that a new candidate for prime minister must be chosen rather than the pro-Iranian alliance's choice, Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. He says it is not Muqtada Sadr's conflict, but everyone's. The pro-Iran militias, he adds, are out of control and must not dictate their will to everyone else. Muqtada Sadr's political bloc won the largest number of seats in parliament in the elections last year, but withdrew his members from the body after months of opposition from pro-Iranian forces. Khattar Abu Diab, who teaches political science at the University of Paris, tells VOA that Sadr should be naming the next Iraqi prime minister because his party won the election and not former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, who he said allowed much harm to the country by not stopping the Islamic State group from wreaking havoc. He says that Sadr is seeking a political consensus in Iraq to fashion a new equilibrium between the country's various components. Iran's political clout, he argues, is on the wane in Iraq as well as in Syria since the death of its former military commander, General Qasem Soleimani. Iraqi analyst Allah Mustafa told State TV that the world is watching the Iraq situation with concern because if the crisis continues, it could paralyze the Iraqi economy and stop the flow of oil, cause world oil prices to rise, and damage the world economy. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. This is Science in a Minute. Soon after COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic in March 2020, researchers set out to determine the source of the virus that causes the disease. The SARS coronavirus 2 was first detected in Wuhan City, China, and was initially linked to living animals being sold at a local market. 
As the pandemic worsened, conspiracy theories of its origin spread in the media and on the Internet. Among them was one that suggested the virus may have been weaponized and leaked from the nearby Wuhan Institute of Virology. Two new studies, one from the Scripps Research Institute and the other from the University of Arizona, suggest that the pandemic started as first thought at Wuhan's Wanan Seafood Market. They also propose the virus wasn't leaked from a laboratory or by any of the other scenarios. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Border Crossings. Join host Larry London. Larry London. On Border Crossings, VOA's only worldwide music request hour. Every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in for the biggest hits and amazing artists. Win prizes and get the latest news from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send your requests to Facebook at VOA Larry London, Twitter at Border Crossings, or Instagram at Border Crossings VOA. Or call 202-619-2077 and have your favorite music played to the entire world. Ah. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal, only on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chino Dwarf in Washington. Have a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States is committed to responsibly managing its relationship with the People's Republic of China by leading with diplomacy and keeping open channels of communication. To further this goal, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with his counterpart, PRC State Councilor Wang Yi, for five hours on the sidelines of the recent G20 conference in Bali.
After the meeting, Secretary Blinken told reporters the two talked about regional and global issues in which both countries had stakes, including the Kremlin's unprovoked war against Ukraine and North Korea's nuclear program. They also discussed areas where more cooperation between the PRC and the United States should be possible. The climate crisis, food security, global health and counter-narcotics. The two leaders discussed areas of disagreement as well, said Secretary Blinken, including Beijing's increasingly provocative rhetoric and activity toward Taiwan, the PRC's repression of freedom in Hong Kong, forced labor, the treatment of ethnic and religious minorities in Tibet, and genocide in Xinjiang. Secretary Blinken also said he shared with State Councillor Wang the United States' concern over the PRC's alignment with Russia, despite the Kremlin's brutal war of choice against Ukraine. What you hear from Beijing is that it claims to be neutral, he declared. It's pretty hard to be neutral when it comes to this aggression. There is a clear aggressor. There is a clear victim. There is a clear challenge not only to the lives and livelihoods of people in Ukraine, but there is a challenge to the international order that China and the United States as permanent members of the Security Council are supposed to uphold. Secretary Blinken noted that in any case, the PRC's actions belie its claim to neutrality. Beijing and Moscow announced their no-limits partnership as Russia was amassing troops on Ukraine's border. In June, President Xi reaffirmed that he stands by that decision. In addition, Beijing continues to support Russia at the United Nations and other international organizations, and Beijing echoes and amplifies Russian propaganda around the world. Secretary Blinken categorized the meeting with State Councillor Wang as useful and constructive. He warned, however, this really is the moment where all have to stand up, as we heard country after country do in the G20, to condemn the Russian aggression. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 